Hey, everybody. It is uh, Wednesday, May 4th, the day before Cinco de Mayo, or Cinco de Mayo, as my wife says, uh, 2016. Thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Hope everyone's doing well out there in uh, the MMA land, and the YouTube land. Been a bit of a quiet couple of weeks in terms of events, but things pick up this weekend. Sunday, Mother's Day. Hope you got your flowers ready and everything else. Um, reservations for brunch, whatever you got to get, make sure you get them. Mother's Day is Sunday here in the United States anyway. Uh, although I don't, I'm not even sure if it's Mother's Day anywhere else. I, I haven't really paid attention at all. But certainly here it's Mother's Day on Sunday. Uh, but it's also UFC Rotterdam. Um, first time UFC is going to be in Holland. So we'll talk about that. We have not had a chance on this live chat to react to um, some of the statements that Conor McGregor has made. So we'll get to that as well. Uh, and anything else you want to talk about? Uh, there's Con Canelo this weekend, which is kind of a bizarre but interesting fight. Um, yeah, and a whole lot more. So uh, you can get at me in the comments section of MMAfighting.com. Comments that turn green uh, get priority but not exclusivity. And um, and yeah, that's how this will go. Um, okay, without further ado, I guess we'll go ahead and get this going. I've got to turn off my notifications from TweetDeck because it just clouds up my screen and it is annoying. All right. Drop down to the first question, shall we? All right. First question is how it goes. McGregor and fighter unity. With it clear from McGregor's conflict with the UFC that fighters will not support each other, does the responsibility of banding together for mutual benefit fall on managers? And with the level of corruption and incompetence in fighter management, is that even possible? That's a great question. It's a really good question to kick things off here. So um, a couple of things I would, I would respond with right away. Uh, no, I don't think it falls on managers, although that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if they somehow got together. Um, I don't know that there's corruption as well. I mean, of course, there is some level of corruption in any line of work, but you point to also incompetence. I would, I would um, point to that as well. I would also sort of point to the fact that most managers don't have a lot of leverage, right? Um, it's hard to drive a bargain um, with any kind of promoter uh, in the current landscape. They just don't. There's not a lot they can do. Um, there's some things they can do, of course, but not not a ton. They're mostly at the will of what they of what their fighter wants. They're in a position to express that, you know, I've talked to managers a thousand times. They're in a position to express what that fighter uh, wants. They're in a position to haggle a little bit. Um, but you can see that in the cases where people have managers who really haggle kind of hard, let's say Holly Holmes manager, um, you know, it's not so clear that in the current climate, um, that'll do you a lot of favors. So, so there's that. So no, I don't. I, and also the managers, they have a set of, you know, the fighters have competing interests, but the managers really have competing interests, even though they have overlapping or they have a number of clients, right? Um, getting, organizing them to do anything seems very, very difficult. And um, I don't know that empowering them is really the appropriate course of action. It seems to me that a trade association or a union, depending on the classification of what we call fighters, independent contractors or employees, um, is much more doable because I think what you're pointing out here is a good question, right? Like, it seems clear that the UFC fighters will not support each other. Again, I think that's very much uh, that's very much reflected in the current climate of things. But I'm a big believer that this is merely the current climate of things. That with some changes, albeit robust, albeit 
not immediate, albeit very, frankly, very difficult to come by, um, that would change. Fighters don't understand that they need to work together. And even if they did, they don't know how. I think these are things that have to be taught. Lots of things related to the practice of organizing, both in the physical sense and in the abstract sense. Um, this requires a certain amount of folks with core competencies in this area um, delivering these things to fighters. And right now, most of the messages they get, both explicit and impl implicit, run in contravention to that. So, so um, this is what's required to get anything to change. But I'm a big believer that this idea that, well, fighters will never work together. Did you see what so-and-so said on Twitter? I mean, it's true. You look at that and you think, like, what are you doing? This is completely against your interest to be saying things like this. Um, some people got offended by it, but I, I really sort of stand by it. Um, I thought some of the, the things that Jose Aldo said were a perfect example of that. Now, I understand the short short run benefit of what he said in terms of uh, reacting to McGregor's absence. Like there is a short run benefit to that. But um, in the long run, I really sort of question what the view is there that he thinks is beneficial um, to fighters. Somebody who has for a long time, if not, it's sort of an explicit way called for fighters to rebel, certainly uh, looked at the part and spoke at least personally about um, ways in which that uh, he didn't want to comply with management. Um, but I think this is a learning process. And I really also think that the more this question gets brought up, um, are they all going to act in unison in some kind of hand-holding way, a kumbaya way that, you know, is some abstraction that doesn't match reality. Uh, you know, of course not. I think this is going to be a long, painful process. But um, the discussion as it currently stands around the plight of fighters and their future as it relates to UFC management, it's it's moving. It's changing. The conversation is evolving. And I think one of the points that should be made is that a lot of fighters, certainly on social media, they'll say things, not that they don't believe necessarily, although there might be a part of that too, but that they'll react in ways where they're, you know, um, Look, if you're here's the truth of the matter. Even in the NFL, look what happens during a labor relations battle. Let's say there's a threat of a uh, the threatening of a lockout. Yeah. You know? Um, if you listen to sports talk radio during that time, no one's going to really call in, or very few people anyway, are going to call in and express deep sympathy for the players. Right. These battles between labor and management, um, I think if you try to win them in the public eye. It doesn't really work. I don't think you're ever going to convince the general NFL fan or the New York Giant fan, um, whatever the case may be, sort of pick your enclave. They're never really going to um, heavily pick a side, especially for guys who have the established protections and established wealth like they do in the NFL. And so I think a lot of guys on Twitter and in, in, in the MMA space, again, again, I, I don't think they understand why signing on to someone else's labor struggle might ultimately benefit them or someone else in a similar position down the road. There is that that you bring up, of course. I think that's correct. But uh, I think also on Twitter, there's a lot of just public posturing, not wanting to rock the boat publicly because publicly these are impossible or virtually impossible battles to win. The battle for um, labor protections is not one that is ever going to benefit the fighters to have with their fan base. Convincing the, the UFC fan base that fighters need these kinds of protections. I think that's a losing battle from day one, and that's not really where it should be fought. It should be fought with the stakeholders, um, Senator John McCain, Representative Mark Wayne Mullen, um, courts to the extent that they're relevant for 
anything. I'm not saying this particular class action lawsuit, but you can sort of take your pick. These are the people that you need to convince. Convincing the public at large and trying to do that in a public social media kind of way, I can see why fighters would either abstain from that or even go in contravention to that. So it says fighter union might or might not happen, but one thing for sure, McGregor won't be the cause or the leader. He is completely selfish and doesn't have a grain of thought for other fighters' benefit. He never talked about it or acted on it. This situation is 100% McGregor versus the UFC and not even remotely related to fighters versus the UFC. Connor bargained for benefit upon his special position in the company, not his position as a fighter. I think there is some merit to that, but I would challenge that a little bit as well. Right. So to your point, let's see where I think we can agree and I'll see if I can split the difference too. You're arguing that, to quote, Connor bargained for benefit upon his special position in the company, not his position. There is some of that that is unequivocally true, right? Part of his bargaining, uh, part of his public pronouncements, even more recently, but certainly since the beginning, have been look at the amount of money I have made for the company. Look at everything I have done for the company. Look at the special contributions I have given the company, either saving a pay-per-view now once but twice, but doing you know, massive amounts of media, you, you name it. Like he, he's got his list. You've all seen it. I've seen it. So on that level, I would certainly agree. I think there's actually a lot of truth to that. Um, but the question is not whether did he act selfishly and is all that, that matters. The question is in acting selfishly, even if only for selfish purposes, is there a trickle down effect? And I think the answer to that is at least worth considering. I don't know that it's true, but I think it's worth considering. Now, there are some folks that have made the argument, for example, related to McGregor, and they have said, um, look, this is why the UFC can't bend. They can't bend because if they bend for McGregor, who won't they stop bending for? And I really, I really don't take that argument um, to be all that persuasive, but there is a little bit of truth to that one too, right? If they do bend for McGregor, people in other predicaments similar or close to McGregor might also be able to draw out concessions. But I think the failure of that argument is that there's a real limit to that. If you reach a McGregor level, and if they bend to McGregor, and you can get into that space or even that orbit, yeah, you might be able to draw out some concessions. But if you're not, you won't, right? I made the point before. LeBron James is going to get a number of concessions from the Cleveland Cavaliers, and this is an imperfect analogy, but he's going to get a number of, of, of uh, the Cavs are going to do things for him. They're just not going to do for Della Vadova, ne ever, ever. It's not true that because they made a certain amount of concessions for LeBron that even Kevin Love will get similar kinds of things. It's not true. There are levels to which an organization will bend for a different kind of talent. Now, that's a different marketplace of competing interests. It's a different kind of relationship that LeBron has to the Cavs versus McGregor to the UFC. It's a whole lot of differences. It's just, it's just, it's just not true that if the UFC bends for McGregor, that therefore they have to bend for virtually everyone. There are real limits to that. And the truth of the matter is, to the extent the UFC can begin to say, okay, we will begin to compromise with labor under certain conditions and specificities. There are always going to be natural limits to that, but it at least opens the door for fighters to get things that they want given to them at the negotiating table in real time. 
that is a benefit to fighters long term. Not every fighter, maybe only headliners, maybe just a specific kind of headliners. But it begins to move the process forward in a more hospitable way for UFC talent. Guys who are fighting on Fight Pass for 8 and 8, this really, to your point, it does not have much effect for them. Um, there had to be much broader concessions or laws passed or some kind of fundamental transformation in their relationship for them to see any real benefit from that. And I think that's a fair argument. But for guys who are at the top of the food chain, the ones we really sort of concern about are, are concerned about in terms of maximizing their earning potential, um, this does have benefit. This is why I was kind of appalled by what Jose Aldo said. Um, I'm not saying he should be up there cheerleading his adversary in McGregor, but I don't know that running the opposite direction was to his benefit long-term either. I guess short-term benefit, maybe, but even then, not really. I don't know how much it really did. I and mean, he already had a fight booked anyway, you know. Um, I, I didn't understand what, what value that really held for him. Um, again, other than the short run, I'll look good for the next few months up until 200. Um, but that's the idea. Like, there definitely is a lot of just this is about McGregor. But the fact of the matter is, to the extent McGregor can leverage UFC, it's not that they'll leverage beat for everyone but it might make it better for a smaller group. All of these different labor struggles, they all happen on different fault lines, but those fault lines have implications for the people right behind them or right near them. I think each one of those is worth pursuing, at least in conversation. Each one of those has its own kind of unique value. Simply stating, well, because it only would benefit McGregor or a handful of other fighters, therefore it doesn't have a ton of value generally. You know, I would take issue with that. I would take issue with that. <clears throat> Well, because every time a fighter signs with the UFC and then pretends it's not fair, he should have a better, he should better have shoot in his own foot. All right. Uh, it is pretty interesting to see them say something about said fighter fighters with issue, then clarify it much later with a markedly modified opinion, e.g. Nick Diaz versus Nevada and fighters versus Reebok sponsor situation. Unless there is something fundamentally wrong that profoundly affects all fighters, regardless of popularity or financial terms, there will never be a unified stance against the UFC. Um... I think for now, that's a fair position to adopt, but long-term, to borrow from uh, the Senate report on 9-11, uh, it, it's a failure of imagination for me. Um, the sport can change, and it will change over time. In what direction? I don't know. How much? We can debate. But I think to see that there is guys not having overlapping interests, or even, in fact, competing interests, and then speaking about that is not, is not a reason to believe that um, with the right kind of impetus, which admittedly hard to come by right now, um, that can't be changed and that that, that can't be spoken about um, differently, I, I just think is wrong. And to your point, you say, unless there's something fundamentally wrong that profoundly affects all fighters. Well, look, not every fighter's in the same predicament. They're going to be able to draw out, again, different concessions, right? There are certain basic protections in the NFL for guys who make the practice squad. I think it's 110,000 a year. Then there's a minimum salary, guys who just make the 53-man roster. I think it's around the neighborhood of 400,000. Then there's all kinds of different protections or provisions that either reward or protect fighters as they move up the food chain in relative importance and beyond. Um, and then, of course, they have their own individual deals with the teams. Right. So at the lower end, what you see is protections at the higher end, what you see is provisions. But, it, you know, the idea that Peyton Manning is in the same spot as, um, I don't know, pick somebody who just got drafted. How about that kid um, from Bu the, the who signed with Buffalo who didn't get drafted, who had that incredible speech in front of his family. Right. These are the or Peyton Manning's retired. So let's say let's pick um, somebody hot and uh, doing really well. Um, 
let's say uh, Aaron Rodgers or something, right? They don't, they have some of the same protections. I mean, Aaron Rodgers would be guaranteed 400,000 no matter what, but you get the idea. It's a, it, to say, well, if it doesn't affect all fighters, well, all fighters aren't in the same predicament. Um, now, the $400,000 protection in the NFL, it does affect all fighters, but it's basically irrelevant to the life of someone like Aaron Rodgers. It's more about, again, providing provisions as they move up um, in relative importance and significance, and again, relative to their own team deals. But um, just because GSP and um, Chaz Skelly are in different positions and what would affect one wouldn't necessarily be relevant to the other doesn't mean there isn't an apparatus that can't be constructed to protect and then benefit both relative to um, the opposing interests of management and ownership. Someone says Chris Bosch has a, has got a problem with the heat. He just went to the NBA Players Union to help him get it resolved. How about Jonathan Papelbon of the Washington Nationals, <laughs> who is challenging, uh, who is challenging? If I'm not mistaken about this, who is challenging the Nationals, who by, by the way blew a save last night, um, with the help of the MLBPA while serving um, as a Washington National. That's kind of funny. All right, ring rust. Um, hey, Luke, how long does it take before ring rust applies? With all this ring rust talk by DC to Jones, do you think it will have ring rust being that he hasn't fought since October and his next fight is July? Yeah, it's a little, it's a difficult conversation. Again, I don't think it affects every fighter every time. I think it affects most fighters most of the time. But to your question, it depends. Um, how frequent has their activity been generally, right? So you take the case of James Vick, who, let me, let me pull up his record. So it's not merely how long it was between fights you would have a problem. It is also how long he's been active, let's say, since he got to the UFC. So James Vick had his fifth professional fight in August of 2013. Then he had two in 2014, then just one in 2015, and then, of course, he just had his first one in 2016. There was a basically a year apart between the Jake Matthews and Glyco Franco win. So you have a couple of problems there. Actually, I would say three problems. One, he's still early in his development, so getting a chance to work that out at a proper clip, that's been impacted. Two, even if he had a more matured skill set and athletic, um, you know, uh, had filled in more into his own body, there would still be this general inactivity over the course of several years if we had take sort of two or three fights every year as a general baseline for um, activity. And then on top of that, you have the in-between last fight to first fight. Uh, or, you know, you know, when's the next fight? So it's July for the end of Cormier. When was the last one? Whatever it was that the uh, um, Gustafson fight took place. So those are the three big questions in play. So for two of those, they're not really relevant. There is one for the last one, which is there's going to be a bigger break than normal. He would have fought in April, so May, June, July. So it's a three-month break, essentially an extra camp that would inv be involved. I don't think DC will have a ton of ring rust as a consequence. He's been fairly active, fairly consistent. He is more matured in his athletic body, more matured in his competitive career. This does not seem to me to have as much of an effect, rather than someone like, say, uh, Vic, who is still developing as both a talent, as a, as a physical athlete, 
and has had inactivity generally and then inactivity specifically between that Matthews and Franza fight. Those are sort of the three considerations I would point to. And also, look, to Dominic Cruz's point, it's not going to affect everyone the same. Even with these factors that I'm highlighting, these we're only speaking in probabilities. We're only speaking in generalities. It, it, it may, in fact, be the case that um, those three months for DC are crippling. It may be that we don't see any difference at all. My guess is we don't see much of a difference, if a difference at all. Um, but but these are the things I look at as general tendencies, not as guarantors. You guys would be proud about how much diet soda I don't drink anymore. All right. So it says there's no timeline to when ring rust will or will not set in. It's unique to every fighter. It's unique to every fighter, but not in a way that's entirely unknowable. Again, I think there are factors you can look at to say there might be some, there might be some ways to predict this. There might be some reasons for concern. Again, in the case of DC at 200, probably not too much. Um, but, you know, when you're out 15 months like Jones, that's a fair reason to be concerned. Plus, he's still developing as an athlete, even though he's already accomplished a great deal. Rematch. What facet of Demetrius Johnson's game has the best chance of competing with Dominic Cruz's range and evasive movement? How do these two match up in the clinch and on the floor, etc.? Hmm. That's interesting. It's an interesting question. Uh, let's see. Well, boy, everyone is killing poor Nate Silver. Golly. <laughs> oh, man. They're killing Nate Silver, aren't they? All right. Uh, in terms of Demetrius Johnson, it's a great question. Um, I really wonder how you beat Dominic Cruz because he sort of makes you come at him a little bit and then he gets out of the way. It's not, it's, you know, it'd be like, oh, well, don't walk him down. He kind of makes you walk him down. He kind of gets in your face and then gets out of the way. So it's very difficult. Here's what I would say. Look, um, uh, if I'm Demetrius Johnson, I'm using speed to my advantage. I'm using open spacing to my advantage, which I know Dominic Cruz does, but I would try to narrow Cruz against the fence to the extent possible. But any kind of physical tie-up I don't think is in his interest. The one takeaway I had, and I was at that fight, and he was in D.C., was that once they tied up physically, that was the beginning of the end for Demetrius. At range, he was able to land on him. Um, obviously, he still has a tremendous punching power himself. Maybe not John Dodson level, but pretty good. Um, he's got good timing. He's got pretty good accuracy. He, he adapts and adjusts well in a fight. But when they physically got locked up, when Dominic Cruz put the bigger size on him, that's when it all went south. So in the clinch, I don't know. I'm not saying, look, you saw what he did against Henry Cejudo. I'm not saying he can't do well there, but I'd be a little bit skeptical of that long term. And then certainly to the extent that Dominic Cruz was able to get any kind of wrestling tie-up that he liked and preferred, it was bad news for Demetrius Johnson. He got suplexed in that fight, if I'm not mistaken. So um, 
So for if I'm Demetrius Johnson, I mean, this is a much more complicated question about individual tactics you can point to. Someone like BJJ Scout could do that, or um, you know, we could look over their film and take a little bit more time to answer this question in a more precise way. But just thinking in a general term here, or general terms, um, it seems to me that any kind of closeness uh, beyond the boxing range, any kind of physical wrestling tie-up on the ground or in the clinch is ultimately not going to benefit him. True or false? Cormier versus Jones 2 will be more competitive than McGregor versus Diaz 2 would have been. I don't know. It's hard to answer. I'll say false. Canelo stops Khan this Saturday. I will say true to that. Uh, did you guys see the interview I did with Paulie Malinaji? I thought he made some really great points, not least of which was, you know, Khan is fast and probably much faster than Canelo. And maybe he can box that range and stay on his feet like he claims he can. And um, that speed and those angles will give Canelo problems. Maybe that's true. But Canelo, excuse me, Khan has never been great defensively. Um, and as a consequence, you really wonder how he's going to be able to manage that against a heavy, heavy puncher who likes to come forward and can back you up like Canelo can. Daniel Cormier is an underappreciated fighter. He is currently, so that's true. Um, he is currently because of the way things are going, the way the dynamics are in play about his belt versus John's and his place in the division versus John's. But I think when it's all said and done, Cormier will probably get the appreciation he deserves. Uh, if Jones decided to retire today, he would be considered the greatest of all time. Maybe. Maybe. I'll say true, but barely. Then there's some debate about the greatness of women's fights, which I encourage you to read. All right, more true-false. Connor's latest social media posts are a, his desperate attempts at coaxing the UFC to, to keep him on the UFC 200 card. False. I don't think that they're desperate, but they are interesting. Uh, and they certainly are in favor of um, um, keeping the Nate Diaz fight alive. 200, I don't know about. Daniel Cormier would have beaten the John Jones that showed up at UFC 197. Probably not. False. McGregor's feud with the UFC is similar to Tito Ortiz's feud with the company back in 2006. False. Demetrius Johnson is a better clinch fighter than John Jones. Mm. False, but maybe. I'll say false for now, but maybe. We just, we've seen a lot more of John Jones work in the clinch, especially when, he, when Jones gets someone's back up against the fence, he's very hard to beat. Demetrius is a little bit better maybe in open space, so maybe, maybe Demetrius. Demetrius might be, uh, sorry, y'all. Demetrius might be more well-rounded. I got hair in my face. But um, Jones might be better against the fence. Anthony Pettis has had the biggest fall from grace in recent memory considering he was a champion only a year ago. Hard to think he's fallen further. I'll say true. Similar to Pettis, Yair Rodriguez's flashy style will be exposed by a fundamentally solid fighter. Um... If he stays the same, but Rodriguez has made a pretty clear point of emphasis that really working on his fundamentals is important for him. So we'll see. 
Kane will be knocked out by Travis Brown's elbows if he tries to shoot in for a takedown against the cage. No, I don't think so. Mm -mm. Kane is going to do the number where he will shoot, come up, fire an underhook, bang on you to get you to protect, then shoot back down, then scoop, and then just terrorize you. I mean, you never know, of course, but that's what I suspect. AKA fighters would benefit in the same way that Robbie Lawler has by not sparring often. Well, I think um, there's probably a little bit of truth to that. I'll say true. It's a bit strange that nearly all of Overeem's opponents haven't tried taking him down. I think his takedown defense is pretty good. He's also hard to get a hold of. The up-close confrontation between Joanna and Gedalia on Tough was slightly arousing. Speak for yourself. Uh, UFC 100 buys and McGregor. Luke, Connor recently posted on Twitter that UFC 196, I think you mean, beat UFC 100 by 400,000 buys. This goes against conventional wisdom, and the number for UFC 100 must be hugely inflated, or UFC 196's buy rate was grossly underrated. Yeah, so I've talked to some folks about that, and they're telling me that there are now reasons to believe that UFC 100 did only 1.2, 1.3 million, um, and that... UFC 196 did 1.5. That would still make McGregor's numbers off, but that would turn what McGregor Diaz was into the biggest pay-per-view of all time. Um, we don't know. We don't really know. MMA fighting seems to be adding some new journalists. Is it growing or replacing journalists who have left or are leaving the site? Um, mostly replacing but we've added some as well, but it's mostly replacement. Uh, good question. Good questions today. Mackenzie Dern in MMA. Luke, how do you think Mackenzie Dern will do when she finally transitions to MMA? And do you think her jiu-jitsu will be more feared or dominant than Rousey's judo? Also, any word on what's next for Ryan Hall? Yeah. Um, I got a little phlegm. I do not know what's next for Ryan Hall. The guy won the Ultimate Fighter, and there does not appear to be a lot of push behind him. Now, he won under you know interesting circumstances, given that the guy who was supposed to compete in the finals couldn't. Hall took his place. But there definitely is not a lot of uh, pushing forward with that, is there? So there's that. Um, in terms of Mackenzie Dern, yeah, we'll see. It, I, I think that her, you know, what makes uh, Rousey's dominance um, so difficult to deal with is that she combines everything in a single chain, right? We always look at Rousey, we try to compartmentalize things. Oh, Rousey's got a great arm bar. Um, you know, Rousey's got great trips. Rousey has unorthodox takedowns. And all of these are true, even if you take them as separate entities. But what really is the key to Rousey's game is that everything is one chain of offense. It's the, it's the connectivity. It's punching her way into the clinch, from the clinch, the throw, from the throw, the immediate set to the arm bar, and then once at the arm bar, um, I think judo, the the judo universe of the jujigatami is much greater than what I've seen out of arm bars from jujitsu. Which is to say, um, jujitsu is interesting in that it has a lot more varied submissions. There's so I mean there and there are a number of there are a huge number of arm bars. Um, that you'll find in jujitsu. Um, but a lot of them are, they're not set up off the takedown. They're set up from static positions on the ground. 
A lot of them are arm bars from the guard. And what you see in judo is I have a whole book downstairs. I'll should, if I know this question was going to be up, I would have brought it up. But um, the Jujikatami universe. I mean, you cannot imagine how many different um, arm bars they have. And some are from guard, of course. But there's a, I mean, they have two chapters on arm bars from turtle, arm bars from standing, arm bars to get, you know, you just, I mean, all kinds of positions, all kinds. From the Hodge twins, all kinds of on bars, all kinds. Um, and I think what makes Rousey so absolutely deadly and, and why it's so difficult is people are haven't encountered someone who fluidly ties them all together in one offensive movement. They're used to the having broken up, being segmented um, in, in ways they're just not accustomed to. The question is, can Dern really do that in that kind of way? No, I don't think so. I think really it's going to depend on what kind of takedowns she has, um, how authoritative are they. To what extent can she box her way into the clinch? You know, once she gets you to the ground, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be a nightmare for you because she's really fluid and dynamic on the ground, aggressive with back takes. Um, she can play top. She can play bottom. She can do a lot, man. So she's really, really gifted, um, positionally sound. But Rousey is really unique in that regard, that if you just say, oh, well, let's look at Rousey's arm bars. That doesn't tell but a portion of the story. Yeah, once she gets on top and mount and she spins with the arm bar, does she have a lot of different varieties there? Sure. Does she have a lot of different varieties to the various defenses you might do where you grab your own bicep and you hug behind the, the hamstrings to get prevent your arm getting yanked out? Yes, of course. She has any number of different things. You saw that against Liz Carmouche, right? She had to remove her outside leg to get the hand that was on top of the inside the, uh, the hamstrings. Once that was gone, she had nothing. This could get pulled out and stretched right? and that arm bar got extended. Um, um, but you get the idea. So it's all those things. Um, that's what makes Rousey so absolutely special. It's, you know, it, she's very, very unique. She's very, very unique. Now, once you shut that down, which is very difficult to do, but if you can shut that down, you can see how everything falls apart because there's not a whole lot else to that game. It's just that that game is so different so complete in its attack by itself like once you get into the clinch from once once she gets an underhook for the most part it's a really complete sequence to the end and that's the other part about her game is just the sequencing of it she's got not just like she's not just looking for the double leg into the side control and then seeing what kind of look you give her before she decides to mount there's all these rehearsed chains that she's got in her mind and she wants to try and she can do them with speed that's another thing that people just aren't used to. Most most grapplers are taught from this position, weigh your options. Now, yes, have some attacks in mind, but it's not nearly as emphasized and pushed as it is in Rousey's game. In her mind, once she locks up an underhook or a trip, and once you go down, from the minute you're off your feet, the, from the instant you're off your feet, she knows exactly where she's going to go. Exactly where she's going to go. Yeah, occasionally she's going to make a mistake. But as you can see, for the most part, that goes pretty well. about one breakfast mcgregor versus c versus c level kane that is funny that is funny someone does fantasy matchups here that are really funny uh diaz versus diaz jones versus dos santos mcgregor versus cruz that's really funny um
Why not have Cyborg fight for the 145-pound title? Even without a division, wouldn't that make the most sense? No, there's no division. Super heavyweight. Do you see the UFC ever adding a 265-plus-pound division? I'm not saying I want them to. Heavyweight fights are already pretty usually bad. I'm just curious. Yeah, look, um, back in the day when, uh, God, who was the Hawaiian promotion? It was not Rumble on the Rock. It was um, Pro, uh, Icon Sport, I think was the name of them. Uh, they, for a while, were doing some super heavyweight fights. You've seen super heavyweight fights in Pride to an ex extent. They're just abysmal. I mean, they sound fun in theory. You know, oh, get some 290-pound guys, get some 300-pound guys to do it. But the reality of it all is it just is, it's just bad fighting. Fighting is better typically at a lighter, more nimble, more flexible kind of human, right? That's why 155 is, I mean, 155 is stacked for a number of reasons absent that. But it also winds up being really great fighting when you watch it for those kinds of reasons. These are guys who typically walk around about 180. Um, maybe 185 or 90 if they're really on the high end, but let's say 180. You know, 180 pounds, if a human being is athletic, man, they can do a lot. They can they can still be limber. They can be explosive. They can be strong. They can be powerful. They can be fluid. They can be quick. They can be um, in great shape. And so it's a really great body type and size for this maximiza maximization of human athletic performance. I think when you get to around 300, not only is the pool of people who can do that a little bit less, but I just don't, you know, with, 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 I'm sure there are some examples that would prove this wrong, but generally speaking, you're going to get people who are just not going to be able to fight in a way that is very pleasing. But it, it, you have to see it first to be like, oh, okay, now I get it. Um, the UFC has announced the date of their 2016 Hall of Fame inductions. If it were up to you, which fighter or fights would you like to see inducted this year? Man, that's a good question. I haven't thought much about it. Um, a lot of guys who I wanted to see in got in. Still would like to see Frank Shamrock get in, right? So that would be a big deal. Frank Shamrock versus Tito. So let's just go with that. Frank Shamrock and Frank Shamrock versus Tito. Um, are those in the Hall of Fame? I don't even know. I have not kept up with the UFC Hall of Fame at all. No, Tito is. Let's see. Current Hall of Famers include Luis Gracie. Yeah. Tito got in in 2012. Yeah. Frank Shamrock versus Tito and Frank Shamrock need to go in that Hall of Fame. So there you go. Uh, Mark Ramundi. How many Mark Ramundis would it take to beat Luke Thomas in a tug-of-war contest? Probably three or four, legitimately. Uh, what is wrong with him? You guys have alluded to him struggling with some health problems. I do hope he's okay. Uh, you know, I would just encourage you to reach out to him on social media. He will tell you everything you need to know. But shout-outs to Mark Ramundi, who is an essential and invaluable component uh, to the MMA fighting team. Any thoughts on the Fodor brothers, F-O-D-O-R, fighting each other on a World Series, a fighting card? Legitimate matchup or just a freak show? Does booking this fight negatively affect World Series of Fighting's reputation in your eyes? Well, I'm afraid to tell you that they don't have a particularly high reputation in my eyes. Um, so I am not sure that this fight in any way uh, sullies it. Um, now, not that I view them as some kind of carnival circus, but just that I don't... I don't um, I don't 
spend a huge portion of my time professionally involved in what they're doing. Um, so if you're asking me, like, is this bout designed to generate eyeballs? I mean, you ask yourself, brother versus brother. It's not like it's a tournament bracket where both brothers entered and it just so happened to be out this way. Um, this was designed, as most fights are, under the matchmaking model fans are accustomed to in mixed martial arts, um, to generate eyeballs. And in that sense, you know, is it any worse than Kimbo versus Dada? I don't think so. So, you know, take it for what it is. But, yeah, it's not like I think World Series of Fighting is, you know, uh, gold standard or something. Um, Connor versus Nate, social media. How funny is it when Connor goes on long outbursts, as you put them, and Nate responds with a one-liner? Well, I suppose it depends on your definition of funny, but um, it seems pretty much par for the course, right? Who's more vocal of the two? Connor's more vocal of the two, even in good moods or bad moods. Um, who is more um, expressive of the two generally? Uh, it's definitely, definitely Conor McGregor. Now, Nate doesn't say as much, but he tries to be as compact with his language and impactful at the same time. So to me, that's not necessarily all that surprising that, um, that this would be of, of value to him. Um, just putting hashtag white belt out, you know, it seems very much representative of what we already know them to be. If you ask me, um, Ricky Hatton in his prime or Amir Khan. Uh, I suppose it would depend on the weight. Um, probably Hatton. DeGale versus Frotch. I'd go Frotch. Uh, I'll do some true-false here. I consider John Jones the greatest fighter ever. I think he's on his way. Frankie Edgar finishes Jose Aldo. Ooh. False. John Jones submits Daniel Cormier. I'll say true. Uh, Amir Khan has no chance this Saturday against Canelo. Well, I won't say no chance, but pretty much no chance. I'll say true. Mayweather would beat Triple G by unanimous decision. True. Conor McGregor will be 0-3 after his next two fights. Um, wow. Probably false, but I don't know. That's a th I mean, he's got some tough fights. Daniel Cormier could be considered the number two pound-for-pound -pound fighter in the world. False. But he's certainly top five, maybe. Uh, Dominic, well, I say certainly top five, maybe. He's arguably top five. How about that? Dominic Cruz would beat Mighty Mouse in a rematch. I would favor him to win, but just given the size differential, but the nature of the cage, the big cage, the small cage would matter. And I think this would be much. Now, the first fight was pretty close, too. But this might be even closer than that. Oh, I skipped one. Let me go back. Uh, coming off of a loss. All right. The UFC didn't budge on their stance regarding Connor, and most of us didn't think they would. But do you think that, let's say, if Connor had fought RDA, beaten him, and become a two weight champ, then could that have been a deal breaker? Because I'd imagine his hype and profile would be off the charts, and the UFC would be desperate to get him fighting again in that case. It's a good question. It's hard to say. You know, these are all, all these scenarios are what ifs. They're not the ones we live in. And so we're just sort of speculating blindly to an extent. Um, 
you know, I think if this whole thing with RDA had never been proposed and you had never heard of it and someone had told you you've got a guy like Conor McGregor and let's even take the, the stats that he put out on Twitter to be fact that he has, that it's a fact that he's got the pay-per-view record, that it's a fact he's got some sort of TV records for Fox Sports 1, that he's got the embedded record or the Fight Pass record or whatever the hell. Let's, let's say it's a fact that he has all these records. Now, he's not fought on Fox, so that wouldn't be relevant, but you get the idea. Anywhere it was relevant to his career. You would say, wow, certainly a guy like that would be able to draw out a concession from the UFC, particularly one that I view as relatively minor, that um, I'm sure the UFC didn't necessarily view it as minor, but not showing up to one press event, you know, a little bit more than that, but certainly one public press conference, but then showing up to one in New York. Um Seems eminently reasonable to me, but clearly not to them. So the question is, what would it take? If that's not enough, what is enough? Him being a two-division champ, would that still be enough? I don't know. You would think that what he already had would be enough, and it wasn't even close. They didn't blink at all. Maybe maybe adding a second belt would do that, but maybe I, I suspect not. I suspect that they're very rigid about the power structure. They're very rigid about their place relative to fighters, and and what their demands are that need to be met. You know, they don't really play around with that too much. Kind of interesting. You know, there's one debate that I want to want to weigh in on that, I don't, that no one's really asked about that I've kind of thought a lot about the last week, if I may. Um, there's been this discussion about should fighters be paid to promote? And there's a lot of competing views and... I just sort of want to make a point that I think needs to be needs to be made to um, to the conversation generally. So there are some who would say, "Yeah, I think fighters should be paid to promote, especially headliners, right? If you're out there doing the promotional bulk of the work to get a fight sold, um, there should be some kind of compensation." And no one really knows what that compensation should look like in the form of monetary dollars, but it should be something. There should be some kind of payment for that, right? Some folks believe that. Others disagree. Others say, look, you're out, you're out there, you, the UFC is using their promotional muscle, um, yes, to help themselves, of course, to they want to sell a pay-per-view, right? But also that they're giving you a platform to sell yourself. Um, you can add to your social media following. You can attract um, interested parties for any number of different things, given the availability of uh, and, the, and the bright lights that they're putting you under. And uh, this has um, a lot of benefits that play out long term. Um, and, and I think that's true too, right? There are pretty clearly some ancillary benefits as a consequence of doing this PR. You get to meet the producers and show bookers for Good Morning America or any number of major shows. You get your Twitter plugged and that can have a good effect. Down, uh, you know, not one event is ever really going to change your life necessarily, but you know, in an accumulative kind of way, these things can have an impact over time. You become a more visible, um, entity and visibility in show business, which is what this is, I suppose, matters. So I think there's like a, I truly believe this, there is some merit to both sides, but it's not really true in a technical way to say fighters are paid to promote. Um, even if you made the argument that, um, well, if you promote a pay-per-view and you get points, um, you, you get paid to promote. Well, in a sense, but that's not a direct payment for those services. That's a general way of rewarding um, outcomes. But those outcomes can be affected by any number of different things and, and ways that may not have any relationship 
to your workload as a promoter. It could in fact be entirely entirely related and you could do a ton of promotion and not get a ton of money on the back end or you could do very little and still receive a lot depending on who else is on the card or the circumstances generally. So it's really not true that you're paid directly. You can be paid indirectly and there are ancillary benefits, but it's not true in a technical way to say you get paid to promote. Now, you can take the position that you should not be paid to promote if you want to take that position you can say you should not be paid to promote the current rewarding and incentivization scheme is enough there are the ancillary benefits we've talked about previously about the you know the opportunity to build your brand plus if you're a headliner let's say with pay-per-view points some of these things can be rewarded over time that's one argument to make i just want to be clear it's not technically possible to argue they get paid to promote they get indirectly compensated but that's not the same thing. What we're talking about is for an event, a press event or a media tour, there is direct compensation for those services. So think of it this way. Think of it this way. Um, Dana White is not the promoter of the UFC. Now that's one of his jobs, but he's actually the president of the UFC, right? If you ask what, what is Dana White's job day in, day out? Boy, it's a lot of things, isn't it? It's uh, certainly managing uh the company to some extent it's talent relations it's looking over and approving any number i'm sure of advertising inventory it's on uh, on an event basis going through and crossing t's and dotting i's and making sure everything has the kind of aesthetic that they like it, it's also promoting now he does a lot less promoting than he used to in the sense that they're still don't get me wrong i'm sure it's still a heavy toll but he doesn't really speak to indigenous mma media anymore um if he does press events um, you know, when the press conference is halfway through, he leaves. He really only talks to your Dan Levitards, your Jim Romes, your general sports media. Um, it doesn't do nearly as much to the indigenous MMA media that he used to. But if you look at the totality of his job, um, what if they came to him and said, what if the UFC, there's no board, but let's say there were or whatever, the CEO and the rest of the executive staff said, we're not going to pay you for promoting anymore. Now, look, there might be some bonus structures, and I'm pretty sure that executives uh, have bonus structures at virtually every company of that size. But what they could say is, well, we're not going to pay to promote, but like, look, to the extent you promote and to the extent that um, these events sell, you know, in the end of the year, whatever your typical bonus package is, we'll take that into account and reward you as such. We're not going to pay you to promote because your job is the presidency. Promoting is just part of being the president. I think Dana White would be well within his right to say this is sort of ridiculous. Like, yes, <clears throat> Promoting is part of my job, but it's a huge part of my job. Now, in the defense of White and why the analogy is imperfect is because promoting comprises a bigger share. <clears throat> pardon me. Promoting is a bigger share of his overall job responsibilities than it would be for most fighters, um, even ones like McGregor and Rousey. Although I would argue, you know, when it comes time for them to do it near a fight, they have no equal. They do a tremendous amount. They could arguably say they do much more. But the point being is, Someone says, well, you know, promoting is part of fighting. They shouldn't get paid specially to do that. Well, promoting is being part of the presidency. But no one argues he shouldn't be compensated relative to all those different responsibilities. No one's saying we should strip that out. That's extra money we don't owe you um, because it's already part of your job. They, they're, the, the, to what he is compensated for, I suspect, is matched against the amount of promoting and the requirements for promoting that he is, you know, situated and capable of doing. 
the difference is um, there's already it's already sort of built into what he's doing. What we're asking for is I think what we what the fighters are asking for those of us a little more sympathetic to their argument is to say um, there there is something special and additional about promoting relative to all their other responsibilities that should be more directly compensated, that there should be something direct about it. But I just sort of want to make a point here, an analogy. Again, it's a little imperfect. I, I don't present to be um, direct, but I think there's something to be said for the fact that if your job is just as a promoter and that's all you had to do, well, yeah, you should, of course, be directly compensated for it. But what if we change the terms of the conversation around USC President Dana White, because he is the president. He has a lot of other jobs, actually, in his own job, and a number of other tasks, day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year, that have nothing to do with promoting. Um, imagine someone told him, you only get paid for that portion of the job. Promoting just comes with it, and there's benefit to you. Look at the benefit you get on social media. Look at the benefit you get in exposure. Look at the ability you get to have your brand enhanced. I think you would probably resist that idea, and I would support him if he did. Um, and I don't think the fighter argument, especially for people who are like Connor and Ronda and these top headliners who have massive amounts of media obligation, I don't think their predicament is all, all that dissimilar. Dissimilar a little bit, yes. Not, not entirely. The analogy still works. You can be against paying fighters if that's the argument you want to be married to. Um, but it's just not technically true to say that they already get paid for it. They don't. And if you're going to defend that... Um, I wonder what one would say about the experience of UFC President Dana White, who is a promoter, but that's only part of his job. He has a promoter's license. He has a number of other responsibilities. Imagine if all he had to do was promote. Well, he'd have a pretty open schedule relative to what he has today. Uh, here's a good question. Luke, do you feel in any way that the UFC's requirement for fighters doing press is more of an employee duty versus independent contractor duty. I'm just wondering if the Connor situation in some ways gives more evidence of the fighters being employees rather than contractors. Um, the way it works for independent contractor versus employees, there's a number of things the government looks at um, to measure these kinds of things. And it's never a direct five checklists you have to meet you know one two three four five yep you met all five up you're an employee it doesn't quite work that way it's more a sort of a body of work and a body of characteristics that they look at typically speaking the more control um the management exerts over labor that favors the labor's argument that they're employees um, and they look for things individually like uniforms but again there are situations where you can wear uniforms that clearly fall under the rubric of independent contractor um, but that's one um, to what extent is the equipment provided for you? To what extent is um, are your expenses paid? To what I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that they look at this, and you know the the requirement to do extra media. I think I don't know that that would necessarily be that way, but to do it without compensation, mm, I wonder if that might. Uh, Almeida versus Garbrandt. Garbrandt. This is a good band. Some way to fight. It's gonna be later this month. Thomas Almeida is one of my favorite rising stars of the UFC. What are your thoughts on his upcoming match versus Cody? No love. And who is your favorite rising star to watch? Well, Almeida is at the top of the list for sure. Um, he is a tremendous talent. Garbrandt, too. They're both really good guys. Uh, I had Garbrandt on the show when I was in Vegas. Um, he's a fun interview. Um, but um, I probably favor Almeida in this matchup. I just think uh, Almeida is a little more clinical of the two. I think he's got a wider variety of weapons. 
Almeida struggles a little bit early. I think he's taken a lot of damage relative to his age, so this is not beyond the reach of Garbrandt to attack um, and win. But uh, Almeida just seems a little bit quicker, a little bit more diverse as a striker, and makes better adjustments over the course of a fight. So it should be very interesting early. Garbrandt's got big, big power, um, but I don't know if he has as many uh, weapons to select in the course of battle, as it were. Damn, I am parched, y'all. Mm. All right. Get this question every so often. Mike Goldberg. Seriously, Luke, how has this guy been doing play-by-play of pay-per-view events for this long? Given the caliber of events he's doing, he's a pretty terrible announcer and the butt of everyone's jokes. He says really dumb things sometimes, and it seems like Joe Rogan is just annoyed with him most of the broadcast. I don't even know what to say about it anymore. Um, I've sort of, there was a couple of years there where I was like, what are they doing? You know, um, look, the UFC is, is loyal to their employees. Um, one could argue in this case to a fault. I'm sure Mike Goldberg is a, a wonderful person and stayed with the UFC when he could have gone in a different direction. And I think they really respect that. And I respect the fact that they respect that. But, um, you know, I'm not sure what to say anymore. You know, I don't really think he's um, – there are probably a lot of better choices out there for play-by-play -play commentators in mixed martial arts. And, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not calling for anyone to lose their job. Obviously, they can pick who they want. But if we're just talking, you know, meritocracy and selecting people in line with that, um, you know, he certainly would not be the top of my list. Embrace the grind when it's never relevant to say, i.e. bringing it up in unnecessary moments. Premature, it's all over. Yeah, he does do a lot of that. Someone says, <clears throat> for fun, you should rewatch Ovin St. Prue versus Krylov. Rogan is calling it so beautifully. He's calling the exchange step-by-step, step, catching all the details, and then Rogan interrupts him with some unusual empty rhetoric in both those Fs up, and they end up missing the moment when OSP sinks the choke. Goldberg totally ruined one of Rogan's shining moments, LOL. There you go. Uh, Luke, is Connor an independent contractor? Legally, does the UFC unilaterally scheduling a press conference on the other side of the globe with mandatory attendance for Conor McGregor indicate he might not be an independent contractor? Um, in and of itself, it wouldn't indicate that. Again, if you go back and you look, let me pull this up just for uh, so you folks have a better understanding of this, and my explanation may not have been good enough. Versus employee checklist. Let's see what we can pull up here. So here's some of the things that they look at. Um, number one, profit or loss. Can the worker make a profit or suffer a loss as a result of the work aside from the money earned from the project? This should involve real economic risk, not just risk of not getting paid. Uh, investment. Does the worker have an investment in the equipment of facilities used to do the work? Three, works for more than one firm. Does the person work for more than one company at a time? This tends to indicate independent contractor status, but isn't conclusive since employees can also work for more than one employer. Again, it's a body of work. Services offered to the general public. Does the worker offer services to that group? Instructions. Do you have the right to give the worker instructions about when, where, and how to work? Training. Do you train the worker to do the job in a particular way? Independent contractors are already trained. 
integration. Are the worker services so important to your business that they have become a necessary part of the business? That's a key about why they didn't bring Connor on for 200, I suspect. Services rendered personally. Must the worker provide the services personally as opposed to delegating tasks to someone else? Hiring assistants. Do you hire, supervise, and pay the worker's assistants? 10, continuing relationship. Is there an ongoing relationship between the worker and yourself? Work hours. Do you set the worker's hours? Um, Full-time work. Must the worker spend all of his or her time on your job? Work done on premises. Must the individual work on your premises or do you control the route and or location where the work must be performed? Sequence. Do you have the right to determine the order in which services are performed? Reports. Must the worker give you reports accounting for his or her actions? That's an interesting one. Pay schedules. Do you pay the worker by hour, week, or month? Independent contractors are generally paid by the job or commission, although or, or by commission, excuse me. Although by industry practice, some are paid by the hour. Expenses. Do you pay the workers business or travel costs? This tends to show control. Tools and materials. Do you provide the worker with equipment, tools, and materials? Independent contractors generally supply with the materials for the job and use their own tools and equipment. They do not in this particular case. There's a bunch of these that I didn't. Uh, right to fire. Can you fire the worker? An independent contractor cannot be fired without subjecting you to the risk of breach of contract lawsuit. And workers' right to quit. Can the worker quit at any time without incurring liability? An independent contractor has a legal obligation to complete the contract. So you can see in some of these, they clearly fit independent contractor status. Some of these, they clearly don't. There's a lot in between that would be hard to argue. It's not really clear. Um, it's not a slam dunk case just yet. However, and there's more than this too, by the way. This is just a small checklist. Um, this goes on and on. Let me see if there's another one that would be helpful. Yeah. Let's see. Um, anyway, you get the idea. There's more than this. That, that was a small checklist, but there are more. Uh, you get the idea. So um, the the only answer to this question, whatever you may think of it, whatever I may think of it, whatever UFC thinks of it, whatever an individual fighter thinks of it, the real answer here is whatever a court thinks about it, what lawyers would argue. Uh, I'm sympathetic to the case that they're employees, but, you know. Which fight are you most looking forward to stylistically on the stacked UFC 198 card? Ooh, good question. Let's pull that out. I feel like that's like really close, and I'm sure there will be buzz for it, but it's not as much as I thought there would be. All right, so Verdum versus Verdum versus uh, Miocic, I care about. Souza versus Belfour, not as much. Silver versus Hall, nope. Cyborg versus Smith, nope. Hua versus Anderson, nope. Maya versus Brown, yes. Uh, Varley Alves taking on Brian Barberina. Poor Barberina. Love that kid, but oof, that's a tough matchup. Tiago Santos versus Nate Marquardt. John Lineker versus Rob Font. That's a sick fight right there. Um, Patrick Cummins versus Little Nog. That's tough. Uh, Masaranduba versus Yancey Medeiros. That's a tough fight. Sergio Moraes versus Luan Chagas. And then Hanato Moicano versus Zubara Tugugov. Tukugov. I can't pronounce his last name at all. Tukugov. 
Um, he's a beast too. But I suppose I would point to Lineker Font or Doom Miocic and maybe Maya versus Brown. That Maya versus Brown fight, it's a tough fight for Brown, man. But if he can win that, wow. <laughs> Funny question. Uh, Follow-up question from a few weeks ago about you being a grunter or a moaner whilst doing deadlifts. All right. This one's green, by the way. What's the longest you've ever taken to do a set of deadlifts? I don't know. I typically do around five to six sets. How long on average have you had to wait before going? Wait, what? How long do you on average have to wait before going between sets of deadlifts? No more than a minute. Is it true when you're older doing deadlifts causes aches and soreness not previously experienced when doing them at a younger age? Yeah. Yes, there is. Uh, why not put up pictures of your dog or something else on that pretty boring gray-white wall behind you? It is time to take the promotional malpractice live chat to another level. Uh, I agree with your characterizations. I agree with your criticisms. Um, I've been looking into it the past week. In fact, um, I have a call today with a company that's going to print me one. I'm going to pay for it out of pocket because that's the kind of guy I am. And I'm going to get a new one up here. A couple of new ones up here, I hope. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. But yes, the gray is boring. The gray sucks. I agree. But it was a stopgap. It was the first step away from just those boring old white walls behind me. Let's see. Could you talk about each of these lightweight prospects? What do you think, which do you think have the best chance to ascend the rankings and which do you think will hit a wall soon? James Vick, I think, has a lot of promises. I think he's well-rounded and his arguments about being inactive, uh, I, I take seriously. I don't know how far he can go. There were some things I didn't like necessarily in his boxing about his chin coming up all the time. Um, but his jiu-jitsu looked really good on the floor. Um, if he can get his takedown defense a little bit more um, responsive, he was defending takedowns just a little slowly. It was when he really began to be more proactive about it that he had greater success. So we'll see. Um, but I think there's still a lot of upside. Rashid Magomedov, um, I'd like to see him vary his weapons a little bit. He's got a lot to like, but um, I still haven't quite seen enough to say I think he can really give the upper-tier guys a lot of problems. But, again, he's developing. Chris Wade, phenomenal takedowns, phenomenal transitions, sick scrambler, great on top. Just not sure what else there is to his game yet. Uh, Masaranduba is not a prospect. The guy is almost 40. Uh, Maribek Tysimov just needs tougher opposition to see where his limits are. You know, um, Do you guys know who... Uh, I've, been, I've been watching so many of his videos. Do you guys know who Mark Wenning is? Uh, excuse me, Matt Wenning. What am I saying? Mark Bell, Matt Wenning. Um, he's like this record power lifter. And he's just absolutely tremendous. Anyway, he's got these videos called So You Think You Can Squat. And what he basically argues is um, you want to watch someone squat, particularly if they're like if they're an advanced student, you want to watch them squat with heavier weight to see where all their flaws are. Like it's not until they're really forced to encounter this difficult weight where you can tell if the posterior chain isn't doing its job or they're looking down or or what, whatever the case there's any number of different imperfections in someone's squatting technique and really deadlifting technique as well but the point it's really a stew point which is until they are required to take on this weight bearing load that can 
you know, force the body to account for different muscle groups to to lift the weight. That's that's the only time you see their imperfections. I feel like Tysonov is the same way. Like, what does he look like? He looks like a million bucks, man. It looks like he can wrestle. He looks like he can do submissions. It looks like he's got great guard passing. It looks like he can do it all. Um, and obviously, he can strike his ass off from the outside. That uppercut he dropped his last opponent with was murderous. But we need to see if he can do that at another level when the weight bearing becomes a little bit more difficult and challenging for him to accept. Um, Leonardo Santos. I didn't think much of his striking before, and then he goes and he blasts out Kevin Lee. Uh, he's obviously injured, which is why James Vick is filling in against Evan Dunham. But uh, his jiu-jitsu is phenomenal. Let's see what kind of wrestling he can do. Let's see what his striking can do. He's a little bit older, too. Prospect is a bit of a tough word with him, but um, we'll see. Stevie Ray, people love him over in Scotland. I'm not so sold on him yet. Jake Matthews, man, wow. We'll see what he can do. You know, If he can avoid taking a bunch of damage, get into these fights, get out, not kill himself in the gym, seems like sky's the limit for him. But, you know. It's always one of these things where if these guys were drafted today in the NFL draft, what would they be like in four years? I don't know. You know the draft is and, and, and evaluating someone at a moment in time, it just seems so imperfect. Joe Rogan Fight Companion. Would you ever consider joining Rogan and company for one of his fight companions or even just being one of his guests? I think you would add a lot to the convo and make for some interesting fight talk. Yeah, but he lives in L.A. I've said this before. He lives in L.A. and I live in D.C. and I don't know that his show has a travel budget. I think what they mostly do is get people who circulate through L.A. I don't know that to be true, but I, I'm pretty sure that's. I mean, not a lot of shows have a travel budget, you know. But of course, like, yeah, it'd be a dream come true. I mean, who am I kidding? Uh, will America be great again? It's great right now. That's the truth. Um. And then someone writes, it's going to be great. You're going to love it. The wall will be built to keep those, I didn't mean, write that, Mexicans out. I love them. They can have great cuisine. They do a superb job. It's someone being funny. I'll just leave it there. One says, please don't ban me. I'm being sarcastic and I'm voting for Bernie. Enjoy that. Um, I think I talked about this last week, if I'm not mistaken. Could you talk about Maya versus Brown? How do you see this fight playing out? Do you see this as a classic striker-grappler matchup? Do you think Maya's striking and or Brown's ground game have evolved enough to call them complete fighters? They are complete fighters to the extent that they want to be. Um, but this one is going to be what you think is going to be, I suspect. Maya's going to be on him like a like white on rice. Um, so... It, it, this really is a. This is just look on the ground. Who's better on the ground? Is it Brown or is it Maya? Probably it's Maya. Probably Maya to a significant degree. So really, this fight hinges on Brown's ability to not put it there, to not let it go there. Either he can do it or he can't. And I, I think I talked about this last week. I had him on my radio show. And I was like, "Why did you take this fight?" He was like, "I took this fight because it's a bad matchup. That's why I took the fight. It's not merely that I recognize it's a bad matchup under conventional wisdom and that I disagree." No, 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 I agree. And not only do I agree, that's that's what intrigued me about it. Like, you have to admire that about Matt Brown. That's an incredible admission. Welterweight title. Explain to me how Woodley is the next challenger for Lawler, supposedly. I can't figure it out at all. Two-fight win streak against Gastelum and Dong Hyung Kim hardly merits it over other alternatives. Uh, I think they just want to keep the title picture moving. And... 
and the queue rotating. I don't think it has much more to do with it than that. Um, someone says this is stolen from Reddit. So we're acknowledging that up front. The most interesting aspect of the Jones DC fight. I saw this posted on Reddit by Mushin Man and was wondering what your thoughts about this were. Quote, John Jones has never fought the same opponent twice in his career. This will be the first ever rematch, and I'm really surprised more people aren't taking this into account. Um, many of Jones's opponents have mentioned that his frame was really difficult to adjust to in the cage and that he seemed longer, stronger, more creative than they had expected after the fact. I honestly think the fact that he is going to fight someone who has now had a chance to experience firsthand his style and is able to go away and refine their own approach to be the most intriguing aspect of the entire fight. I completely agree. I've said this before. You go back and you watch the first fight. Yes, Jones won. Sure. And three to two rounds. Maybe you some argue four to one. I think it's pretty clearly three to two, but okay. Right? He won. But Cormier didn't get blown out. He got taken down like what a couple times, three at most. This is not distance between them that is insurmountable. It's likely insurmountable. It's not hugely insurmountable. And to your point, the chance for Cormier to get a do-over against the same opponent and not too far away from the spacing while he got those other two fights under his belt. Now, those other, other two fights, they raised some interesting questions. How much did they benefit him? How much did they just bruise him up? I mean, that was a tough fight against Anthony Johnson, and that was a very tough fight against Alexander Gustafson. Were those wars things that made him better? You talk to MMA coaches, and they will tell you this to a man. Not every war makes you better. Sometimes wars just make you less. I mean, they showcase what's great about you, but in the end, they didn't serve any real purpose other than to retain a win or something like that, a belt in this case with, with Gustafson and Cormier. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what those wars did to him, whether they were beneficial or whether they weren't. But um, I do believe that, like, again, I, I am not proclaiming, and I'm not sure who in their right mind could, that for much of the fan base and particularly the casual fan base that Jones DC two is as satisfying a headliner as Connor versus Diaz two. I I'm not saying that, but uh, this idea that like Cormier's already lost. I mean, look, maybe Jones goes in there and blows him out. Who's to say, but is there at least a reason to think for some of the reasons highlighted here? One that the first fight was a clear Jones win, but not a crushing defeat. And two, that this is the first time he's had a rematch ever in his career. I, I, I really believe these are relevant, fair questions. Not answers, but questions. Worth considering. Sure. Absolutely. That seems entirely reasonable to me. Someone says, great point, but my only issue is DC is literally fighting the exact same way he did in the Jones fight. Get in the clinch and throw uppercuts or go for the takedown. He did it both against Gustafson and Anthony Johnson. Maybe he will try something new against Jones, but if he is, he hasn't shown it in the cage yet. I'm not picking Cormier to win, but fair point. Uh, it's past 2.15, so let's go to Twitter to get some of the Twitter questions. Luke, with the talk of the benefits of the UFC fighters being employees versus independent contractors, would there be any negatives for them? Um, it might raise costs on the UFC such that they would have to hire or they could only hire fewer fighters. So I think it would reduce the UFC in terms of the number of size of the roster or the number of athletes and then the size of the roster. Excuse me. Um, but I don't know that that would be a bad thing for consumers. 
Uh, does the return of Cody McKenzie and Mayhem Miller combined with Husamar Pajaras make Venator 3 the most epic near event? It's something. Not a question, but if Connor was paid $10,000 per each day spent promoting, that's chump change to him. Okay. Uh, random question. Whatever happened to Alan Belcher? He retired. He retired. He has a gym in, uh, I think, Louisiana, I want to say, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he has formally retired. How big do you think UFC 200 would be if they combined all three fight cards that week? Well, it's not that those other ones would necessarily add to the pay-per-view total, right? That's the beauty of, you know, everyone's like, how do they put RDA versus Alvarez on Fight Pass? That wasn't going to set numbers ablaze on pay-per-view. Um, and I understand, if you, you know, we want to make sure those guys get as much spotlight as possible. I'm with you. I hear you. So it's a fair point. But um, it's, if we're just being realistic about the kind of drawing power they have, that, I mean, it would make for a tremendous card, but it wouldn't be a card that would sell appreciably a lot more. Tate speaking out and taking Dana's side less than a year after he told her to retire must have got a good new contract. You know what? I have not read any of her comments. So I can't speak to that. But now that you've brought it up, I will take a look. What is your sense of John McCain's current opinion of MMA? He did once hilariously refer to the sport as human cockfighting. You know what's funny? Whenever I post anything about John McCain, uh, everyone's like, isn't this the guy who called a human cockfighting? Like he, I'm not saying he's walked back those remarks, but he has, I mean, unequivocally stated in a number of major press moments that he has no problem with MMA anymore. That the way it's regulated... Uh, I mean, he might want to expand the Ali Act, which you saw my interview with him. But in terms of what the promoters are doing, in terms of the regulations that have been passed by the state, he's entirely pleased by this. He doesn't call it human cockfighting anymore. I think a lot of people, you know, because it is brought up so often, I understand what they do it, but um, that is not reflective of his current position at all. And frankly, you know, I'm not saying it's it was awesome that he called it human cockfighting, but. Um, you can't have it both ways. You can't say MMA is as good as it's been and it's as safe as it's been and then say John McCain um, you know, is, is some sort of terrible travesty for, in the history of MMA. In many ways, um, the legal push to get some kind of regulatory oversight is, is I mean, either it's been beneficial or it hasn't, right? And it has. Uh, after Cyborg defeats Leslie Smith at UFC 198, she calls out Ronda Rousey in the cage. Does she do it? I bet there's no way she doesn't do it. Uh, I thought it was interesting that he wasn't backing, someone says, uh, uh, Tito Ortiz said in an interview that disputing with the UFC while under contract was bad for his career. I thought it was interesting that he wasn't backing Connor as Tito also pushed back against the company. I think he just said, he, I think he's just reflecting, you know, to what extent is it most advantageous for you if you have contractual concerns? Um, is it to do it while under contract? Probably not because they still have a tremendous degree of control over you and what you can and can't do. So, you know, how beneficial is that to you in the long run? I think it's probably more um, his argument. I know you're not a tough fan, Ultimate Fighter fan. Oh, no. Wow. Well, folks, I hate to give you some bad news, but here we go. Um, this, of course, I'm just seeing this on... Uh, wow. 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 Uh, 
that is um i'm so sorry to hear this man well according to uh chamatkar sandu who of course is a uh european uh reporter for mma junkie quote really sad news Via Mike Kogan's Instagram account, Instagram account, it appears Jordan Parsons has passed away. Jordan Parsons, you'll recall, is the uh, fighter who was uh, scheduled to compete at Bellator 154, who was in the hit-and-run accident and initially had his leg amputated. Uh, it appears he has passed away. That is that is terrible. Wow. Wow. Um, hmm. yeah, yeah, it's true. I'm looking on my uh, work email. Yeah, it's true. Wow. Um, that is terrible. That is truly horrific and awful. And if you know anything about that situation, if you live in Delray, Florida, if you know anybody who does live in Delray, Florida, if you know anybody in that area who I believe the car was a silver uh, Range Rover, um, please do something. Scott, can you believe that? That is just awful. Ali. Wow. Um, all right. Someone says, I know you're not a tough fan, but what do you think of the fans hating on Joanna for her behavior in Ultimate Fighter 23? Temporary, it won't last. Uh, I'm split on moving the Ali Act to MMA. I want more given to fighters, but I don't want the sport to turn into what boxing is now. Padded records, huge mismatches, never seen the best versus the best. Am I overthinking this? I don't think the Ali Act necessarily has caused that. Um, you had that prior to the Alley Act, right? Um, although maybe it's a little more exacerbated these days, but I don't know that uh, the Alley Act can be a direct contributor to that. So um, I see what you're saying, but I'd be happy with there be a trading associ trade association or a union, and then the UFC getting monopoly, um, being declared a monopoly, like the NFL is, like MLB is, but with government sanctioning. So they get that sanctioning as a monopoly, but the fighters get the protections. I think that would be the most equitable split. So that really, look, here's the truth. Do we really want government legislation for this? I mean, we have it at the state level. Do we want it at the federal level? I'm not against it. I think it would be helpful given the current climate, but are we asking, is that the most helpful? Is it the most, is that the best way to maximize uh, all the party's interests? I'm not so sure that it is. I think there might be some other ways. Boy, I can't get this out of my head. I cannot believe that kid passed away that is that is so horrible rest in peace to jordan parsons and his family and um wow if you know anything about that you have a moral responsibility to do something about it um jesus all right i'll try to soldier on here uh, as a fan of la liga do you know Deportivo? Do you like Atletico's style, Ablas Espanol? Yes, I speak Spanish, but not very well. Do I know Deportivo? I know all the teams. Do you like Atletico's style? Well, not for Real Madrid's chances if, if they make it to the final, but we'll see how they do against City today. 
What type of trash talk is better? Grandiose McGregor insults or the intense bullying EJ check displays? Better for what? Canelo or Khan? Canelo. Is it possible, and what leverage would a sort of union between, let's say, Connor, Ronda, and Jones give versus UFC? If the three of them got together, that'd be interesting. Um, there were probably some concessions made, but to really get them to bend, it would take a, mu a much more full-throated effort. It would take, people always like, oh, it would take headliners to do it. It would take headliners, and it would take middle-level fighters, and it would take lower-level fighters working in conjunction. It would have to affect the UFC's business in totality, not in parts. If Connor and Nate are on 201, will it do more buys than 200? You know what's interesting about what Connor McGregor did? So, what was one of the arguments uh, in favor of why Mayweather Pacquiao did so many buys? One of the arguments was that, look, these guys had a fight that was supposed to happen, and then year one passes, nothing happens. Year two passes, three, four, five, six, and goes on and on. Well, the fight doesn't happen. There were these years that passed between the fight being uh, hinted at, rumored, and wanted, nearly made, and then eventually made. And, of course, that, may, that meant that by the time that it had been built, there had been these massive amounts of discussion and interest built. That's why there was, that's why ultimately there was no media tour. There didn't need to be. Now, I am not putting – Connor's a little bit delusional. I'm not putting Connor versus Nate at Mayweather-Pacquiao. However, what I would say is that this fight wasn't made and will eventually likely get made, or let's say if it does get made, to your point, at 201 or 202 or 203 or whatever, um, there'll have been all this added discussion to it that will boost whatever it was going to be before, maybe even further. You could maybe make that argument. There's a little bit, a little bit of that Mayweather-Pacquiao phenomenon pushing this and buoying it in a in a, uh, a real sales direction. Uh, let's see. What fight do you see next for Connor With New York right around the corner, I think they're going to make that Diaz fight no matter what. Reem versus Arlovsky. This is the first question about sa Sunday's fights. How crucial is Jackson siding with Andre, being that he has worked closely with him recently? I didn't see what the split was in coaching. Um, I don't know that that will matter too much. I'm told that Reem didn't do much of his camp in Jackson's for this fight at all. Uh, Magny called out Nate at 170, and Nate's going on vacation. What do you think of Nick versus Magny for a comeback fight? Um, Magny's probably a little bit too big for him. Uh, are UFC reducing the number of cards dramatically? 16 scheduled through July compared to last year, or 25 through the same number of uh, time. Same time last year, yes. Everyone's like, oh, the UFC did the exact same thing they did last year. They're just, uh, you know, they got lucky with Conor and Ronda. Well, they did get lucky with Conor and Ronda, yes. They, that definitely turned out to be too, true, but I believe that they are fundamentally changing some of their business practices, not in, a, not in a massive sweeping kind of way, but they're making the right adjustments, and I think it's paying dividends even with the number of injuries they've had this year. Uh, what would most fighters prefer, health insurance and Reebok deal or no health insurance and no Reebok deal? I think it would depend entirely on what portion of the fight game that they're they occupy, what what, what space in the fight game they occupy. Um, prediction for tonight, sir. Hoping for another Madrid final. Uh, of course, I'm, we'll see. Ronaldo's back. There's no Benzema. There's no Casemiro in the midfield. We'll see what they do. I think they're probably going to put in Isco as a consequence. I have not seen the starting lineup, so I could be wrong about that, but we'll see. 
Um, also because Zidane hates Hamas, which is just lovely for me. Um, why do we see more variation in styles and innovation in striking, but not so much with ground fighting? You have seen innovation in ground fighting. Um, it just doesn't look the same as it being more exciting. It's become more utilitarian, which is a little bit different. Striking has become certainly more utilitarian in a way, but also more aesthetically pleasing and dynamic. Ground fighting has not yet, but that that could change. Check out the um, the web guard that Faraz Zahabi uh, talks about. That could change things, right? Things like that. Uh, okay, we have to go. I want to remind everyone we will have coverage of UFC Fight Night, whatever it is, Rotterdam, um, on Sunday. So check that out. I got the Luke Thomas show at 4 p.m. today. We're going to have um, the guy who was supposed to fight Jordan Parsons on the show, plus Paul Felder. Um, that's on SiriusXM Rush 93 at 4 p.m. Give this a video a like. I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much for watching. Give us a positive review on, Sound or on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and uh, share this video with whoever you can. I would really appreciate it. And until next time, you guys know what to do. Stay frosty.